We talk a lot about our hearts, both inside and outside the church. But what do we really mean by that word? What is a distinctly Christian vision of the heart? And how would it compare to the broader culture's understanding? In our interview today, I'm talking with Craig Troxell about what the Bible really says about the human heart and how it relates to the mind, the desires, and the will. Craig is a former pastor who currently serves as professor of practical theology at Westminster Seminary in California. He's also the author of With All Your Heart, Orienting Your Mind, Desires, and Will Toward Christ from Crossway. Let's get started. Well, Craig, thank you so much for joining me today on the Crossway Podcast. Yeah, it's good to be here. Thank you, Matt. So as I was preparing to, to talk with you today, uh, I was doing a little bit of thinking about the way that we often think and talk about our hearts. And I think uh, both outside of the church and our broader culture, but especially within the church, we, we do uh, talk about our hearts a lot. We have phrases that we use a lot that refer to our hearts. And um, so it's a, it's, a, it's a common topic for us to be thinking at least a little bit about. Um, but I've also noticed that I think as I was thinking about myself, if someone were to ask me, well, define exactly what do you mean by the heart, uh, particularly from like a biblical or Christian perspective, what does that mean? I think I, I might have a hard time really defining it precisely. So I guess I just wonder, you've been a, uh, both a pastor for years, and now you're a professor teaching seminary students. Have you observed that dynamic that we, we use this language a lot, but we don't always know what we actually mean by it? Yes, and I, I mean, I think that's, a, that's an excellent place to begin. I, I think there are common conceptions in the church that we've gained from the culture than there's conceptions we have in the church because the, the church has not discouraged certain understandings of the heart. So one of them is a just a Western idea of this kind of division between the heart and the head. And mm. you, you see that in our literature even. And there's a sense in which you understand exactly what is being trying to be said, which is which is noble yeah. and praiseworthy. Like it's better to have love of God in your heart than to have knowledge of God in your head. Or theology should not be just for the head, it should be for the heart. But those are good sentiments, but that technically is not a, a, a right way of, of seeing it. So, so, is it. so is it just the issue that we're using kind of the wrong words? We're, we're expressing a true sentiment, but we're just kind of using the wrong words. Exactly, exactly. But then are there dangers, though? Are there other kinds of, because we've, we've got the wrong words that we're trying to use to communicate something that is true, does that ever lead us to incorrect thinking about about things. Yeah, I, I think, so what's incipient to that sort of thing is it's almost this, you know, anti-doctrinal, anti-intellectual view of the faith, that knowledge is actually something that's for brainiacs, you know, it's mm. something, and that's divorced from the heart. The, the real, the sweet nectar of the Christian faith is about feeling and emotion, which is one of the things in the church that we kind of perpetuate is this, we so heavily freight the the heart with emotion and feeling, which is right. That's exactly where the Bible says it is. Mm -hmm. But the Bible also says the heart is where we think. You know, it's 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 the cognitive functions of, of who we are. As somebody has said, our most noble functions are attributed to the heart. And so that includes our thinking. Mm. And so you do see this tendency in the church, and especially in some segments of the church. I was not raised in the Reformed faith, and I saw this in the church where I was raised in, especially where theology um, was considered almost, you know, unspiritual. Mm, yeah. And, and so that has all kinds of problems. Maybe dangerous. Very dangerous because I, I think especially, think of the person who's, who's really struggling with doubt. 
it's a legitimate intellectual doubt. So if we're going to have this kind of anti-intellectual view, you know, of, 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 the, of the Christian faith, what are we saying to these people who have these questions that are incredibly spiritual questions? But we're saying, yeah, but that's just about theology. Well, you can't separate these. Mm. Uh, well, maybe we we'll get into this in terms of defining the heart, but you can't, like, put these different aspects of the heart's function into these, you know, these um, sort of separate, you know, antiseptical rooms. Yeah, you know, right. they're completely divorced from each other. You cannot divorce, you know, your desires from your thinking. Yeah. Or from your will. Do, do you ever get the sense, though, that that's kind of what we often do, that one side is going to emphasize, you know, the heart as our emotions and, you know, our affections for God being the kind of most important thing. And then maybe in response to that, someone maybe more in our camp would sort of say, well, but, but theology matters, the mind matters, so what you think about God matters. And I mean, that's more important. Do you ever get the sense there's this kind of ping-ponging, re- reactive back and forth on the two kind of sides? Sure. I, I think it's absolutely true. And the Reformed faith has often been in, in, uh, uh, described as being, you know, rationalistic, you know, or too heavily intellectual. Do you think there's any truth to that? I think there's some. Um, I think you have to put it into perspective. Like, who's saying this? Mm. And when you think of, you know, if you just take the whole continuum of the Christian faith, so how many people are taking theology seriously at all? Yeah. I mean, who's, who's writing? That's, that's probably not the biggest problem facing the Christian faith. Yeah, it's not the only problem. And I think the, you know, the, the problem is, yeah, we're doing a lot of heavy lifting. You know, I guess the, the same would, would be true of like, who's, who's doing a lot of heavy lifting when it comes to bioethics in the Christian faith? It would be the Roman Catholic Church. Mm. Um, but I would say the Reform camp is, is accused of, of being too heavily intellectual. And I think that's... I think that's fair sometimes, and I think, have we neglected other aspects of the heart? I think that's fair. That's not our tradition. That's <laughs> definitely not the Puritans, and that's mm. not John Calvin. I mean, you can't read John Calvin and come away saying that. So, so okay, so let's unpack that a little bit. You're saying that maybe modern Reformed uh, Christians can be, at times, rightly accused of neglecting certain facets of the heart, but you're saying that's not that wouldn't be true to the, the broader Reformed tradition in history. True. Not true to Augustine. Not true to the Puritans, for sure. The Puritans, I think, are the ones who really worked with the grid that I, I described in, in, in the book. And, I mean, that's where I learned it. Hmm. And, and Calvin, I've been just been reworking through the Institutes, the, the English translation of the 1541 tra- uh, French translation, his favorite. And it's just incredible how early on the mind and the will come up, like literally in chapter one. And he understands how important this is. But... He's very concerned. There's this awesome quote. I don't have it memorized yet, so I can't give it to you. Well, he talks about our theology. <laughs> yet? Is, yet? Does that mean it's, not, it's yet. coming? You're yeah. working on it? Yeah, I'll, I'll memorize it. Maybe give me two hours. <laughs> but, you know, the theology that must, must be evidenced in our life. So this is like what, what Paul says in, in Titus. Uh, truth according to godliness. The true, real truth, you know, expresses itself in godliness. It comes in this fruitfulness that... Um, manifests itself across our life, the whole person, you know. And so I'm getting a little bit adrift of the, the main question you're asking, but my concern is that we not fudge the lines in terms of doing really good theology, but that theology, we should, we should deeply feel it. Mm. It, it, should, it should come with tremendous passion because I said this once in a sermon. I said, brothers and sisters, 
I just don't believe this is true. I need this to be true. With all of my being, I need Christ as my substitute. And you need to feel that you need that. I feel that. And it's because I I know the nearness of my sin. This is not just theology. Theology in the best sense is something that, like you're using the word affections, which the Puritans would have used to refer to our desires. It's this love I have for Christ and this deep gratitude I feel for him for what he's done for me. And every Christian feels that. Hmm. They just understand that both those things spring from their heart. Hmm. Well, and I want to I jump into that because we've already kind of been dancing around <laughs> this idea that um, the heart is this multifaceted thing that encompasses maybe more than what we, we would typically realize. Uh, and you actually you, you use this word of the heart is a trinity of spiritual functions. And so I, I wonder if you could unpack that. What, what are those three functions that the heart plays in our lives? So when you see the word heart in scripture, your first instinct is that it refers to the unity, the totality of who we are within. So in that sense, it's synonymous with spirit and soul and conscience, inner person. So, so you'd say there's, we really shouldn't be looking for different nuances in those words. When we see Jesus say, you know, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right. he's kind of just saying the same thing. Right, it's like saying United Kingdom versus Great Britain. You know, these are total. Mm. They, they overlap, and so in that one, he's simply saying, "With with all you are, all that you have." But heart, like those other words, it refers to the inner self. But those other words lack nuance that heart has. In heart, sometimes you see in the context, it's clearly emphasizing the cognitive aspects of who you are, intellect. This is especially true in the Old Testament. In fact, where you see the Hebrew word lev and the vav. In Old Testament, I think it's like 528 times, something like that. Most often, it's referring to the cognitive element of who we are. So this would be like mind. Mind. So this is the mind of the heart. And you see this especially in the book of Proverbs. Like you see the phrase, lacks sense. Like the adulterer says he lacks sense. Literally, it's lacks heart. Hmm. And so there's many times in the book of Proverbs where English translations routinely, you'll see the word mind or understanding, something like that. It's literally the word heart. But we wouldn't... Unless you're, unless you're reading Hebrew, you're not going to see that. You're not going to see that. And, you, and, you, and the translator's caught in a tough spot because we wouldn't naturally see that. And, and that's, that's part of the problem. So there's the mind of the heart. The second would be the desires of the heart, or what the, uh, the Puritans call the affections. This is what speaks to what I, what I long for, what I want. And all these synonyms like hungering you know, for righteousness, thirsty uh, for God, thirsting for God, Psalm 63. Um, and so... These are the things that we love, ultimately. So it's not I just desire, I really desire it. Mm. And, and then this leads to, if I get what I want or I don't, leads to emotion. And so this is why the heart is always associated with emotion in the Old Testament and, and the New Testament, and that's why people are right to, to gravitate t- towards that, f- that understanding. Then the third category would be the will, the volitional aspect of who we are, my, my decision-making, my making choices. So... I say with the mind, it's what you know, your desires, it's, it's what you love, and your will, it's what you choose. Mm. It's, it's my saying either yes or no. And here's another category where people think they can opt out, and there's, well, there's no such thing. People think, well, I'm not gonna make a decision. Well, you just made a decision. Yeah, right. You, you decide you're not gonna get in the game, but yeah. you're actually in the game. Yeah, you're, right. You're standing still. <laughs> but, and so it's, it's my will stepping in to say, depend upon either the strength or the, or the weakness of that will and that determination, yes or no. Mm. So those three um, represent really the, you know, the, the categories of the heart. And that's, that's in conformity to not just Puritan theology, but modern scholarship. 
Mm. If you look at modern biblical scholarship, they'll say heart has this, these threefold functions. So this is not a new idea. Yeah. It's just that, especially I think because of Greek philosophy, we've seen a rift between the mind and the rest of the heart. Yeah. Well, I'm sure listeners will immediately kind of start to sense that all three of those things, is, it's hard to think of mind and desires and will apart from each other. They clearly are interrelated and interconnected and are... are um, it can't be subtracted from or extracted from each other. Um, but I, I do want to kind mm-hmm. of walk through them maybe uh, one at a time. So let's start with mind. One of the striking quote from your book is, uh, you write, if your heart principally does one thing, it thinks. So are we reading that right to, to say that you're kind of prioritizing the thinking, the cognitive side of the heart uh, above the others? And if so, why is that? Hmm. So I would say no. That's <laughs> not what I mean. I, it's almost, it's meant to be a little bit provocative because it's so counterinstinctive. Yeah. You know, it's not what people think, but it is true. And, you know, one of the rejoinders I've heard a couple times in, in speaking is, but what about the brain? Yeah, how does that fit in? Exactly. And, 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 and I've thought about this a little bit, believe it or not, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, um, and that is, I, I would say it this way. I said brain is hardware, heart is software. Hmm. So we're not talking about your capacity to think and how the brain works. I d- I'm, I, I'm sure we don't understand nearly as much as we think we understand about yeah. how that works. Clearly the brain is involved it's in our thinking. It's clearly involved, and it's your ability, synapses, connections, whatever. Okay, I'm, that's, I'm completely out of my league. <laughs> but see, the Bible is saying it's not just interested in, in hardware, and this is true of being made in God's image. Yeah, it's there. You're, you're made in God's image. But let's get down to the software. Like, what's happened now? Mm. You know, what kind of virus has impacted you? And of course, that's sin. And so the Bible is very, very concerned to show us that you trust your thinking a thousand times more than you should. You know, mm. Jeremiah, the famous 79, the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? The next verse, it says, I, the Lord, understand. You know, mm. I, mean, I see the heart. But we, you, you and I don't. Yeah, we don't understand our own minds. Or... I com- completely, on a regular basis, impressed with how capable I am of deceiving myself Mm. and just how I'm not right as much as I think I am. Mm. I'm not seeing it clearly. Um, But I think that capacity of the the heart is is so essential to to see how it's tethered to other things. But it's, yeah, it's our ability to think. But the scripture is concerned about but what's the trajectory of your thinking? Yeah, yeah. As, uh, I know you didn't, you're not trying to write on brain science and, and, and uh, those kinds of things, but I wonder, have you thought a little bit about, though, how these concepts of the heart, whether it's the thinking side or uh, certainly leading to the desires and the choosing, the will, um, how does that fit with what we do know about brain science right now, where we can see that, you know, say, physical trauma to the brain <clears throat> can actually affect our ability to to know things, to think clearly, mm-hmm. to make memories. It can affect people's emotional states and their ability to control their emotions. Have you thought anything about that and how to how that kind of fits in with even the the, the metaphor that you use of hardware versus software? I think it, only to this extent that it's connected. You know, I mean, Eastern philosophy is really big on the mind in terms of in overcoming things with the mind. And I think that's not something we should shy away from. I think in terms of common grace, it's showing us something that I think the Bible would affirm. So, so the idea of overcoming physical things with the mind, yeah, over, right? Yeah, and being able to overcome feelings of pain, other things. Mm. That the, the mind is incredibly powerful. Why would we be afraid of that? Yeah. That's exactly what the Bible so says. They're picking up 
correctly on a connection between mind and body that sometimes we we split apart. How do people get ulcers? I mean, explain mm, that. Yeah. It was stress. Well, where is stress? Where does that begin? Yeah. Well, it has a lot to do with your thinking. You know, so, the, so the, these things are tethered together, and I think that's what the Bible is saying. And it's saying that, I mean, Romans 1 brings this out so artistically, is that when a person is, is given over to the lust, their desires, what they want, it just unfolds the futility of their thinking, their ignorance, the darkness of their thought life, and how every, every attempt that they have to look at the truth, it's just, it's like, um, it's distorted. And it's, it's incredibly errant. And, and the reason for that, part of the reason is it goes the other way around, is that, well, there's an agenda behind that thinking. Mm. There's a reason why you don't want to lose this argument. Yeah. There's a reason why you're so angry at that person's statement. And it's because I need this argument to go this certain direction, you know, because I'm, I'm invested in it. Mm. It's like when you tell a child, as I did once, one of my children was acting so angry. I said, what did you do? <laughs> and just a burst into tears. Yeah. Because I knew they were not happy yeah. with themselves. And, and that's why they were taking it out upon everybody around them. Mm. And, and it's, that, it's that connection. Yeah. Not being able to live with this thought of what I have done. Yeah. And how it affects. So is there a certain priority then, though, logically to mind? You know, does, does how we think then determine how we feel and, and then how we choose? There's a couple authors, and there's one author in particular who I, it's one of my mentors and who I just greatly love, that in preaching, they would say, you want to begin with the mind. And then in your preaching, let it trickle down all the way to the, to the desires. I, I appreciate that concern. I, I there's, don't a, there's a certain intuitive feel to that. There is. I, 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 the way I would rather put it is, whatever you do in your preaching, don't bypass the mind. Hmm. because, you know, John Owen says, where does Satan start in his temptation? So usually with the desires. And, you know, this is kind of the way he appeals to Eve. Boy, isn't that fruit just wonderful? Mm, <laughs> you know, and, yeah. But he's appealing to her desire, you know, not with those words, but before he's really attacking the, the theology, what, you know, God says. I mean, it, I think it's all wrapped up together, and I think it's, in the reform camp, I'm, I know we want to say, perhaps, or, or we feel like it's more reformed to say, start with the mind. You know, let's get that figured out first. And, and I, I think it's an all-around approach. And I mm. think there's different passages that you're preaching or looking at. That's not the order they're going after. Mm. It might even start with the will and say, why are you being so stubborn? Yeah. Why, why are your heels dug in the... I mean, is this really worth it? You know, and, and what does this say about where your, your heart yeah. is? So you have no choice to start with the mind. You're going to, because I'm talking to you. Yeah. I'm appealing to your reason. I'm appealing to, let us let us reason together, says the Lord. The one time the Bible says that, puts his arm around and says, okay, we're going to try to look at this the same way. We're going to, I need you to look at, look at yourself the way I look at you, yeah. which is an incredible thought. Yeah. You know, because he's not just saying your sin, you're washed clean. Huh. And so that's what you're doing, you know, like say you're preaching a sermon. Say, all right, come on. We're going to look at this together. Well, I'm appealing to the mind. But it may not be the object I'm looking at necessarily. It's just the mind. Mm. So that's why I don't, I don't feel like I'm in a hardened position about, you know, where the starting point is necessarily. Yeah, yeah. So Okay. Let's talk about our desires then too. 
um, as I was as I was reading through the book, I came across another section that really uh, kind of stopped me in my tracks, uh, and I, I actually want to read a little bit of it. Uh, so just a little context: uh, you you're reflecting on a time in high school uh, when your football team lost the game, and you were sitting there, you know, I guess in the locker room afterwards, and and you were I think disappointed, but you weren't super crushed by it. You were you were fine, and you looked over and you saw a fellow player. Um, I think weeping yeah. at the loss, and you, you said that. Well, I will let you describe it. Describe kind of how you felt uh, in that moment, and and what that led you to to discover. Yeah, so when we lost to DePaul seven to zero. It was in college, and it was the tight end. Brian was his name, hmm. and um, I felt ashamed. Ashamed that you weren't as sad as he was. And I fir- my first instinct was looking. It was like, wow, you know, this is a football. You're not supposed to be crying. Yeah. And I felt ashamed, like, why, why am I not feeling this loss? And I, it hit me, I had not invested myself to the extent he had. I had held back. Mm-hmm. Now, I had played a pretty hard game. I had plenty of lumps to prove it, but I, it struck me. And in later reflection, you know, looking back about why it's so important for us to invest ourselves in our desires that a lot of people say that's where sports goes too far but I would say no this is where sports and other things too art music Mm. where you throw yourself into it but it didn't go exactly the way you wanted there are important lessons for life here I I would rather teach my children to throw themselves completely absolutely passionately into something and maybe the results don't go the way you want to, but I don't want to live my life with regret, mm. you know, not give my best. So how, how does that then fit with it? Some, someone could hear you say that, and it, it maybe sound like you're advocating for an overly emotional kind of existence where everything is throwing you up and throwing you down. And how does you know, control of our own emotions and feelings fit into that kind of a thinking? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's emotions that we feel in, 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 you know, as we react, and, and it's amazing. This, this startles people how many commands there are in Scripture. Okay, you need to rejoice always. Oh, wait a second. How am I supposed to do? I was supposed mm. to feel joy. I thought that was kind of a spontaneous thing. No, you, there's a limit to these things. What I'm talking about there in part is, is to throw yourself towards those things that are, are most noble in life. Like, so I'm married. It's very clear in Scripture who is to receive you know, the very best of my energy and the best of my thoughts and and the very best the cream of my love you know it's without question there's only one one thing in life that surpasses that and that's christ and i would i would like to think that to love him with all my heart it means with everything i feel i mean just take for example repentance what is repentance it's not just mumbling a few words Mm. you know through a, a, a rote method every morning, I'm sorry I've sinned against you, forgive me for my pride and my selfishness. Repentance in scripture is being grief-stricken. Hmm. There's almost this level, we can say this in the right way, of self-hatred. I hate myself when I do this, when I'm angry at myself. Why did I commit that sophomoric mistake again hmm. for the 10,000th time? And it's that just total unhappiness, I've displeased him who I love most. See, I often hear Christians um, when, when someone even expresses that level of grief at their own sin or, or yeah, using language of hatred, I, I hate myself for doing that, it feels like often the, the response that, that uh, Christians want to give is, uh, but Jesus has forgiven you. Right. You're, you're, you're washed clean. 
is that is that the right impulse? No, I, I don't think it is because I think it's it's like treating life like it's a Hallmark card. It's a thirty minute sitcom. You know, we're going to introduce a serious issue and a few laughs along the way in twenty five minutes with a few commercials. We're going to clean the whole thing up and everybody go home and we'll do it all again next week. Mm. Like that is not life, and I don't think that's the way life is to be lived. I think life is a roller coaster. It's ups and downs. It is is incredibly disappointing. I read the book of Ecclesiastes mm. if you want a real look of what, how we understand what life is. And I think it's filled with tremendous passion and ups and downs. And I think that can be done in a way that is incredibly healthy. It's when those things get out of, out of control and when they begin to, to mess me up and I lose my, my mm. moorings, okay, well, that's different. You know? I think sometimes people can associate strong, intense feelings, especially the negative feelings in life, uh, sadness, uh, um, despair, despondency, as as maybe um, examples of a, a lack of faith or a, a questioning mm. of of God and who He is and who He is to us of, of salvation, maybe. Um, do you think that's that's overblown? That's not as big of a concern as maybe sometimes we make it out to be. Say it again. So that the deep emotion or feeling that, that, that feeling those negative emotions, we often uh, view those those with a lot of suspicion. Oh, I, I see. What you're, yeah, very good. Uh, Book of Psalms. I mean, it's mm. the emotional smorgasbord. Yeah, I mean, it's it's all there, and I think the way to look at it, and I've I've I used to preach the Psalms every summer to get make sure that people never lost touch with that part of the spiritual life, and that it, like, and I would say, okay, this is not pop music. Pop music <laughs> just simply cannot carry this kind of freight. I yeah. said, this is a blues, and so it's 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 more gutty, you know, it's more visceral, it's gritty, it sometimes looks really dark. But blues can handle that. Mm. You know, it's a genre, it's an idiom of, of music that can handle it. And the Christian life needs to be a, a more full spectrum so it can handle those sorts of things. Mm. Like, this is perfectly healthy. You know, your spouse just died, or you, you just, this just happened. Life crushed you in this way. Well, throw that up to God and do it in the way that the Psalter does yeah. with that kind of language. That, that shows that you're taking this relationship seriously. Mm. You use that word a couple times now, healthy. Uh, this is a healthy way to, to feel about the world. W- why do you use that word in particular? Because I think the, the Psalter, and we look at the lives of saints, the way they cast themselves down before the Lord, their tears, the long valleys, you know, of, of, of great emotional darkness show that the, the bandwidth, or I'm not sure what the right metaphor is here, that there's... There's more, uh, there's more tolerance and mm. allowance. There should be more margin for times of profound emotion. It's, it's our brothers and sisters who get in trouble and who maybe are in trouble who's, A, d- constituted differently, so they experience melancholy or depression differently, and we need to be very sympathetic to them. That's a whole other level, and that's, and that's not really exactly what I'm talking about. Um, are you talking about people who, who would struggle with that on like kind of an ongoing, yes, constant basis? exactly. Yeah. And, and that's where we get back to you know, body, soul, that for some of our brothers and sisters, that's where it, there might be some, you know, um, physical needs, yeah. that there's this constant interaction there. And it's a very complex thing. I'm not, I'm not equipped to speak to that, but I think we have to recognize mm-hmm. that. that that's not, not necessarily what you're talking about in this particular Exactly right. Yeah. Thank you for, for saying that. And I, so I think that spiritually, we need to hang in there, have a little bit more patience with people and saying, this is a season, mm. but I'm going to walk with you through this season. What, what's behind that, that, that impulse, though, that I think we've all seen among Christianity, where sometimes the most uh, seemingly spiritual, mature, and, um, and uh, 
those who know the Bible so well, uh, can often, there can be this, a little bit of the sense of a stoic uh, standing back where, you know, no. no matter what comes my way, we, we sing songs that kind of get at this, no matter what happens to me, I'm going to trust in God. I'm going to be okay. I'm going to stand firm. Um, what do you think is behind that kind of uh, stoic approach to Christianity that is, that is, I think, sometimes pretty common? Well, sometimes, on one level, it could be just that maturity of somebody who's decided or is just simply not comfortable expressing themselves outwardly and what they're feeling inwardly. And we need to make room for that, mm. too, in the church. There's some people where you think, this person's not an emotional Christian. It's like, well, you have no idea what's going on. They might not manifest it like you do. Exactly. Just because their arms aren't raised up, you know, or maybe because they're not crying. Are you just saying that because you're from an OPC church and no, raising hands no. isn't, isn't your thing? No, I'm saying that based <laughs> upon my experience and mm. knowing some Christians where there is a thunderstorm taking place in that person's mm. heart and, and just learning not to be superficial. There are Christians that have learned you know, in very skillful ways how to put on a happy face and they are really suffering. And the Bible talks about that. Yeah. You know? I'm just saying that we need to be, you know, just have more depth. Mm. And, and, and not be fooled, you know, by appearances. And I think that's, it's wonderful we have emotion, we have, I'm sorry, worship that allows for that kind of emotion too, where it's not, not just all just incredibly um, emotional highs or the music's not just that, but, it show, but the music reflects that there's these other seasons too. Or some of our Christian friends who walk through those doors, they don't even really want to be there. And or their heart is numb. Hmm. And they need to know it's okay. Yeah. Come in, let's, let's speak the truth to each other. Let's sing about the truth. God may have something different for you today. He may not. Yeah. But let's, let's go into these depths, these hmm. undercurrents, and let's just see what God has for us all in terms of his truth, which is, I love 1 John 3.20. Even when our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. Hmm. There's, <laughs> he's so much bigger. Yeah, yeah. So, so one of the things you've, a term that you've thrown out already that's uh, often very associated with the Puritans is that idea of affections. Mm. I wonder, what do you think that word in, in particular kind of gives us and helps us with as we talk about the desires, uh, our emotions? Yeah. The reason I like that, um, it's a little antiquated, but it means this is where I've placed my love and it's obvious. Mm. We Think of a, of a married couple who are affectionate. Um, when you see a couple in their 60s and 70s holding hands, you know, there's something... Something about that, that just all of us see that and we think, I want that. I want that someday. And think of what it's rooted in, how deep it goes. So I, I, I like that. And this idea that, you know, desires are never content to be just these mild things. You know, it, they always want to go deeper and they reach to the very heart of who you are. In one sense, I would have no problem saying the Puritans really understood the affections were the heart of the heart. And, uh, and as a preacher, in my opinion, I wish I'd felt this way from the beginning of the ministry when I was incredibly naive. Um, and that is, if I'm not targeting that as a preacher, then what am I doing? I mean, we're, if we're not after that, mm. then what... Are, and that's where I see that gets back to your early question. Are we sometimes rightly accused in the Reformed faith of being too intellectual? And I would say, yeah. If we walk out of a sermon and say that was just really great theology, hmm. I, I would feel like I had, I had uh, completely bombed yeah. as a preacher. Hmm. I, want, I want you to be moved. Is it possible to be 
to be too focused on the affections, on uh, the desires in, in how we think about them? Yeah, I, I mean, a couple ways. I mean, Scripture says that the desires need to be kept in bounds. And John Freeman says it's not just uh, what is out of bounds, but what is out of balance. Hmm. And so it's possible for something to, to take too much of my energy. Yeah. I, I, one of my measures is what am I reading you know, there's brain candy, right? Yeah. And it's like, I'll just read, I'll read one more of these. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so sick of East of Eden. I'm reading it. I'm trying to just plow my way through it. This is almost as bad as Moby Dick by Melville. It's like, <laughs> he says a sermon illustration once. I said, you're going down with me. I hated this book, but I'm going to get one sermon illustration out of it. But, you know, you can get, but if I start reading too much in a, in a literary genre that it's just like feeding you know, this nothingness, or it's mm. not just really weighty or pushing me, then I, okay, wait a second. This mm. is out of balance. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But we can do it in that sense. And the other sense, of course, is what's called idolatry, you know, where I've lifted it up to a yeah. place where, okay, now I'm starting to give some of my devotion to this thing yeah. that belongs to God. I mean, I love football. There's a time when my life kind of rose and fell with it, but it was never, you know, at the place near Christ but that's not true for a lot of people. Yeah. It's their, it's their whole life, their identity is sucked up into that sport or to that job or whatever. I've always felt bad for people said, well, your job's not your identity. It's like, well, that's not, that's not all bad, right? Mm. I, I don't want anybody working for me doesn't have any passion. Yeah, yeah. We know what they mean to say, but that's like the worst thing to say to somebody who just got fired. Uh, your job's in your identity. Well, you're that's fine. You're yeah, <laughs> it's going to work out. That's not how it feels. Yeah, Somebody yeah. just reached into my chest and pulled out my heart. And it's okay that it feels that way. Yeah, I think so. I, 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 otherwise, you're probably not doing your job well. Hmm. The, but, but at the end of the day, of course, you, it can become so consuming, not just becoming a workaholic, but the, but the affirmation and praise you want, it's at work, hmm. you know, when it should be at home. Yeah. That's, that's, that's so good. One of the other things I've, I've, I've noticed and observed about uh, our desires, uh, what, we, what we're drawn towards as people, is, is oftentimes um, when it comes to, let's say, our will in particular, uh, what we choose to do, it's, we have pretty clear categories of we can choose wrongly, and therefore we're responsible or culpable for that choosing. We can be held, held to, uh, to blame for that. Uh, however, when it comes to our, our affections, oftentimes... Uh, we maybe have a harder time thinking about blame and responsibility for those because mm-hmm. those feel uh, those feel like less like something we think about and then choose. They feel often unbidden. They just kind of arise within us, uh, almost it sometimes feels like out of nowhere. I don't I don't have control over it. It just happened to me rather than something I do. Uh, so would you say that's right? Are we right to think of the affections as something though that we still are in some ways responsible for and can be in sin in? Yes, yes, very much. I'm, I'm very much responsible for, at the end, what makes me angry. There's times when we're, you know, we feel the emotions in a flash, and there's a sense in which there's a part of that um, we might feel that we're not responsible for, but that's indicative of something. The way I think of emotions, it's, it's like there's a lot I can do to nurture my garden to make sure it's going to be productive. Pulling the weeds, cultivating the plants, watering watching out for rodents, things like that, whatever it is. You know, there's a lot of things I can do. At the end of the day, I can't make those plants grow. I can't make the sun to shine. I can't make it rain, etc. But there's a lot I can do to nurture life in that garden. And there's a lot we can do to nurture good, healthy, emotional life. Mm. And so I think that's one of the scriptural ways in which 
you know, like Paul says to the Galatian church, you know, where's your joy? And I think that's, I, that's a legitimate question, is that, you know, you, you do have some control over the things that you're going to rejoice in. And what, where's your whole thought life? You know, what are you meditating upon? And there are choices that we make too in thinking of the will. And so there's a lot more there that we're, mm. that we're capable of doing when I just think it's another area where we want to excuse ourselves. You know, mm. the heart is deceitful. Well, I, could, I was just angry. Well, well, why were you angry? And it's not enough just to say, I was angry, but I, I, I had self-control. I didn't, I didn't say what I wanted to say. Um, but you would say that doesn't mean that you maybe weren't in sin. It's not a pass. And, you know, like we use the language of triggered, for instance. This is a good example. Where I think there's some legitimacy to this. But there comes a point, too, where, okay, but you have, you have some control sometimes about what triggers you, right? And, and that's not a popular thing to say. But, you know, I, I must not understate the significance of self-control. Mm. And, and which that extends beyond just the choosing. It, you would say it extends both the thinking and to even what we desire. I think so, you know, and you know, what am I creating and, and what, what kind of environment am I creating in my life where I have a choice as to what I'm allowing before my eyes, what mm. I'm allowing to come into my ears and the very things that I know are going to provoke me mm. in certain ways. And maybe I was looking for an argument, Yeah, you know, maybe I was looking for an excuse to, to sulk, you know, and pout. Yeah. And, well, that's very much within my purview what I'm supposed to be doing and, and what I'm accountable for. Yeah, yeah. Th- that garden metaphor is helpful because it's, it's suggesting that a lot of that work happens before we get into the situation that provokes some kind of emotional response. You know, I, I remember being in a situation, was working on a fencing cruise in western Nebraska, and a guy dropped a wire stretcher. I won't get into details what this all, all this equipment A fencing means. crew? Like fencing you're putting up fences? Barbed wire. Okay. Yeah, and um, he dropped it on my head. <laughs> and, uh, and it was pretty heavy, and it hurt. And he stood back and he looked at me like I was going to punch him or something like that. And I said, what? And he says, you didn't cuss. Huh. He was just, it, it blew him away that nothing angry came out of my mouth. Yeah. And we have no idea of just working on self-control in one's life. And I was like 21 years old at the time. That, that and it's interesting, it was that incident that made an inroad so that my foreman, or on the last day that job came up to me, with tears in his eyes, made sure nobody was watching. And he knew I was staying for the ministry, and he called me Rev. He always called me Rev. <laughs> but he's the only one who met with respect. And he said, I will never forget you. Huh. There's something different about you. Wow. And just having that kind of self-control, is like there's a lot of times we're, we're angry because we're feeding that, that anger. Yeah, yeah. So when talking about the heart, uh, sometimes we, we do tend to use language like, I just want to protect my heart, or I want to guard my heart. And I think for some, some Christians, that, that kind of language can sound maybe trite or naive, or o- almost maybe like it's, a, it's kind of this cowardly excuse to sort of disengage from the world, perhaps, and, mm-hmm. and maybe be sheltered. Uh, what do you think about that? Is there, uh, is, should that be a, a real category for us as Christians, the idea of guarding our hearts? Well, Proverbs 4.23 says it should be. Hmm. And the, it's an interesting word that's used there because it has kind of a twofold meaning of looking without and looking within. So if you think in terms of an army, you know, you're in battle, you're always looking at your fronts and looking out, you know, for the, for the enemy, where are they attacking, what are they doing? 
what strategy may they be unfolding. But on mm-hmm. the other hand, as somebody has said, you also know there might be traitors in your midst. So you're looking within, you're always concerned about the morale of the troops. Are they well fed? Are they healthy? What about the wounded? You know, are they trained well? So it's, it's both these things. And so it's not a naive move at all. It's actually being, you know, it, it, it's guarding ourselves against naivete to say, I, I need to protect this. I mean, this is, Proverbs 4.23 says, the reason you do this is that the issues of life flow from this one point. Mm. Here's where it all begins. This is the headwaters. This is the governing center of who we are, the helm of the ship, however you want to say it, the driver's seat. So you can pick one of your metaphors yeah, if you like. Yeah. Starts here. So it, needs, it means I need to really be careful about this. Mm. So when I lived in Fairbanks, Alaska, the, the water was terrible. There's so much sulfur in the bowl of Fairbanks, Alaska, that you, you can't get all of it out. There's actually people's hair color that changed. Oh, wow. There. And so a lot of people would go out to what was Fox Springs, and I would get my water there until somebody... <laughs> discovered arsenic, places of arsenic, oh, no. put a poison in there, and the, which was great because the lines got so much shorter. And so, <laughs> oh, so you kept going. I kept going. <laughs> I thought I'll, I'll get an immunity to arsenic, so if some future parishioner wants to poison me, you know, <laughs> it won't work. <laughs> but anyway, um, see, the guard that spring was really important, make sure it was pure. I mean, eventually, I was glad somebody went and got it tested. But I think that, you know, Scripture's saying the same here. So I need to really take care of my heart but on the other hand, to know that they're outside influences. And I forget who said this, but you know, the enemy, Satan, has an immediate confederate in my own heart. Mm-hmm. That there's things my heart attaches to. And this is why you have these, all these warnings from Christ about worldliness yeah. and different forms of worldliness. And he's yeah. often pointing right into your heart. It starts inside. Yeah, where's your treasure? And he's saying, don't, don't put your treasure in the world. What are we likely to do? Put a treasure in the world. And so I need to guard my heart in, in certain propensities that I have that might be unique to myself, hmm. not just... And here, the things are not always so hardened in terms of like, well, every man struggles with this. Well, I know men that struggle with this over here too. Hmm. And so, but the question is not what men, but what, what do I want? And you know, where are my weaknesses? Yeah. That would, that would require then uh, a fair amount of introspection and, and self-analysis. And that's something that doesn't feel like it's talked about a lot these days. Yeah. Well, I think scripture, you know, talks about examining yourself. So self-examination is very important. I think introspection can be too, it can be endless. And there's no real understanding of where the guardrails. Self-examination has a guide and a goal. The guide is scripture. Christ, by the Holy Spirit, speaking to me through scripture and has a goal. And that is to mortify my sin, to put to death my sin, and to, and to see righteousness and the fruit of the Spirit fanned into flame, all this to the, to the benefit of others, the glory of God. That's a very different project and agenda than mm. just introspection. So self-examination helps, in those scriptural terms, helps to ward off my descending into myself, you know, endlessly, or going to the quantum, whatever it is, you know, and Ant-Man, you <laughs> yeah. know, it goes into the subpartonic, whatever it is. It's like, this is getting crazy. But that's how some Christians go. Yeah, right. But they've, but then nobody's holding their hand, mm. and that's where Scripture is sp- supposed to be your guide, not just to show you what's wrong, but to show you the grace of God in Christ. It's, Search me, O oh, oh God, and know my heart. Try me, know my anxious thoughts. Show me if there's any anxious way in me. No, sh- show me if there is anything grievous in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. So it's, mm. it's not just show me what's wrong, but put me on the right road. Yeah. 
well, how can I correct this? What's supposed to take its place? And where, where do I look to Christ in this to know that his, his forgiveness and his love, his spirit and his power are sufficient for me mm. in this? Yeah. And laying hold of that, that ministry of Christ in me. Yeah. Speak to the person listening right now who, and listening to you talk about uh, this idea of guarding our hearts and of even knowing ourselves better so that we can proactively, intentionally uh, protect our hearts. Uh, but maybe just as I don't, I don't know how to do that. What, what does that look like? Give me a practical um, picture of what that might look like for me on a on a daily basis. Any advice to offer someone like that? Well, I, maybe a couple things. I, I think it's an excellent question, and I'd, I'd want to ask some more questions as a pastor, or as a brother, or sister, or as a friend to see, you know, what are they? What is this person really asking me? Um, one, I would say open scripture, but open it with, with prayer, asking God, you need to show me my heart and help me to understand the ways in which I'm falling short, maybe the ways in which I'm perverting or twisting what is a really good command, or the ways in which I'm rebelling against what you have here or the ways in which I'm too easily caving to the temptations of the world. Show me those things so I could see them. Um, I would say too, paying attention to your thought life too or if there's a particular area of temptation and sin in your life, boy, every church father talks about this and the Puritans are so good. Work that chain backwards. Where did it begin? Mm, yeah. Because I guarantee you, you've seen that before. Now, it could be that Satan is simply trying a different lure, but we've been at this fishing hole before. Or you've seen that lure before. Or, or he's come at you at this time of the day before. And depending upon who you are, like if you're a young man, you know, that early, that first hour of the day, you know, maybe you need to get in the gym right away. You know, there's, there's, certain, there's certain times, seasons, ways, certain publications, certain websites, certain that where you need to be just a little bit more self-aware about, mm. wait a second, this looks kind of familiar. Yeah. Yeah, it should, because this is where it went wrong last time. And it's not necessarily that all those things, those situations or activities or what have you are inherently exactly. wrong or problematic. Good. But Very good. But you're kind of saying... It's uh, that's part of protecting our heart is actually being aware of the whole path that we might take into into sin. Just being wise about that, but you know, God God is faithful. You know, as we pray these things, I mean, that Psalm one thirty nine verse twenty three prayer. Search me, O God. Are you sure you're ready to pray that prayer? That takes a lot of courage, because He will show you. Hmm. And sometimes it's very painful, and you need to be prepared for that. But if you love Christ, if you want to follow him and follow, and think of that, follow him and leave, abandon whatever I've been, mm. follow him, no matter what he says. Are you, op- are you ready to open this book? He says, follow me. Mm. I want you to, here's your cross. Deny yourself. Go and sell all that you have. Follow me. Mm. Well, Craig, thank you so much for taking the time today to, to talk with us and uh, help us understand our own hearts a little bit better and, and propel us forward to, to trying to, to love God with all our hearts. We appreciate it. Well, in one sense, I'm sorry, because getting to my own heart has not been an easy journey. Mm. But, you know, in terms of following Christ, it's, it's so essential. But it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's good to reflect upon these things, and I just hope our conversation will be useful to another person to, to follow him uh, more faithfully. By his grace, I mean, it's so important to say that his grace is sufficient for these things and he will help us as he has. Amen.
That was Craig Troxell on Understanding the Heart. For more, be sure to check out his book with Crossway, With All Your Heart, Orienting Your Mind, Desires, and Will Toward Christ. Pick up your copy of the book for 30% off directly from Crossway by visiting crossway.org plus. That's crossway.org plus. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, would you leave us a review? That really helps us spread the word about the show. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.